are up here in Switzerland and I don't want to let the Swiss reputation for punctuality down. So we're going to start right on time. We have some really interesting topics to cover in the, four, the very short 45 minutes that we have together. So I'm Jennifer Jordan, for those of you who don't know me, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Behavior here at IMD, and I'm both delighted and honored to be here with you today. Delighted and honored for a couple of reasons. First of all, to be part of the first, the inaugural OWP Live is really quite exciting, quite a privilege. But second, because I'm here to talk about an incredibly relevant and exciting topic for you out there as leaders. The role of the leader in an AI virtual and database world. And so we know that AI is taking over many of the skills, many of the competencies that we once thought were uniquely human. So we see AI starting to do lie detection, determining if someone is lying or telling the truth. AI playing quite complex games like Go. AI creating art, or if you would consider this art, I'll let you make your just judgment about that. Um, AI being used to diagnose or detect disease. Unilever is using AI to select job candidates. And this is the latest one. And if you follow me on LinkedIn, you saw me post about this one, an article last week in the New York Times talking about how people use an AI chatbot to find friendship and companionship and reduce loneliness during COVID. So these are all things that we once thought, or at least as a leadership professor, I thought was a uniquely human competency, human ability. And today we have three wonderful panelists with us here today to talk about that role between the leader and AI, the intersection between leader and AI. And the question is, so what is the role of the human leader, you out there, in a world increasingly influenced by and infused with AI? And here to talk about that topic with me today, our three wonderful speakers um, feel very grateful that they're here with us today. First of all, Pedro Barros, the CEO of NextThink. He's coming uh, to us here today from Boston. So he got up super early to be with us today. Hello, Pedro. Hello, nice um, to meet you. Thanks, Jennifer. Hello. Bertrand Botson, the Chief Digital Officer, the CDO at Novartis. He's coming to us today from Basel, so just a bit north. Good afternoon, Hi, Bertrand. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. And last but not least, Thomas Gresh, the CTO, Chief Technology Officer of TX Group, and he's coming to us quite near Zurich. Is that correct, Thomas? Correct. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon, Thomas. I'm going to let these three incredible speakers introduce themselves briefly. I should also say that Bertrand will have to leave us a bit early, so he will have to leave at 1.30, but we will be sure to get his uh, views on this topic before he has to depart. So, Pedro, would you mind just starting off and giving an introduction to yourself and the relevance of this topic for you to our audience? Yes, sure. So, so thanks, Jennifer. Yes, so I'm Pedro Bados. I'm uh, the co-founder and CEO of Nextink. Uh, Nextink used to be actually a startup at the PFL, which is very close to uh, to IMD. Uh, as a CEO, also, I have a technology background. I actually did my studies in artificial intelligence at the PFL. And we invented a few years ago a technology to actually give all uh, the information to IT departments that they need to make sure employees can work from computers. So basically, we are specialized in giving intelligence, insights, all the information that IT teams they need to make sure people can work from home and actually from, from everywhere. So this is our business. We are about 800 people uh, in the world. 
we are a fast-growing uh, company. We are one of these uh, unicorns that uh, many people they talk about. And yeah, we are between Switzerland and, and Boston. Thank you, Pedro. I had the pleasure of working with Pedro and his team uh, last year here at IMD. Bertrand, please introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Jennifer. And uh, hello, everyone. Um, Bertrand Bautzon, I'm the Chief Digital Officer at Novartis, joined about a uh, good couple of years ago, but not coming from the healthcare space. I used to work uh, at Amazon uh, almost now 20 years ago when it was still uh, a startup where I certainly learned a lot about uh, customer obsession and uh, the value of building actually some pretty uh, sizable platforms and scalable platforms from day one, including the role of data implicitly in so many ways. But then I had my own business, which uh, I sold after a few years. Uh, as a social media platform, especially in the US and the UK. And then uh, had actually a lot of fun for three years in the music business, uh, where actually when we talk about human and AI, to some extent it was about human and data really starting colliding uh, about a decade ago, when if you remember the Spotify's and others, and the digitalization of that space starting to happen, where you had the pure artistry and the richness of data that we knew about every single artist, uh, the tracks that they were getting out there, the social posts and others, uh, which had a lot of uh, interesting analogies to what we're talking about today. I then went back to retail to compete against uh, Amazon, which I found a fascinating space, certainly super fast space, uh, doing a digital transformation of a very sizable business in the UK. And now here at, uh, at Novartis, where effectively we have engaged a pretty sizable digital transformation about two and a half years ago. It's one of our top five priorities to go big on data and digital just to plant the seed. Uh, we're trying to take on challenges that I think are probably even more true now in COVID, but it takes us 12 years and two and a half billion to get a drugs to market. We all know that there is room to go faster on this. How do we use data to complement human in that, in that context? Uh, where 40% of our patients don't adhere to their drug medication, how can we really help on that? And healthcare in general is about 15% of most countries' GDP. Uh, the urgency with COVID is really rising big, big time. So proud to be in that space, but with big challenges where I think we'll have to think a bit more broadly than uh, current setup to work with. Thank you, Bertrand. And um, I had the privilege of, of writing a case with Bertrand over the last couple of years on the role of the CDO at Novartis and uh, knowing what an incredible transformation they're being part of, uh, he's part of and uh, at, the, at the organization. And last but not least, Thomas. Um, Thomas Gresh, please introduce yourself to the audience, Thomas. My name is Thomas Gresh and I work as the CTO at TX Group. And TX Group just got renamed into the TX Group. TX Group is the largest Swiss publisher. And um, we are extremely active in the digital space. So about half of the internet traffic coming from Swiss offerings um, is routed through one of our offerings. So that's classifieds, that's media, that's transactional websites like marketplaces. And uh, I'm originally by training a physicist and then started with many startups and joined Tamedia back then six years ago. And that's also when we started to get active in the whole data space. That's a team that I lead. It's about 30 people within the TX group now. And there, 
um, we, we learned a lot about um, how to improve the offerings and how to scale with AI through and machine learning um, our, our general offerings and how to lay an architecture that really supports our, our business. So very happy to be here in this round. Thank you, Thomas. Um, so I'm gonna start with a question. I think we're all here wondering, what is that intersection between the human and the machine look like? And what does it look like in your industries and in your line of work? So that is my first question to you. Where have you seen AI start to replace humans and or where have you seen the intersection between the human leader and AI? And the more explicit you can be in your examples, giving concrete examples, especially those that would be relevant for our leadership audience, that would be much appreciated. I'm gonna start, Bertrand, if you have to leave first, I'm gonna start with you. Where have you seen that intersection or that replacement? At many places in different degrees, and uh, to your point about being very concrete, I think you touched on the lung cancer example detection by Google AI. On part of it, we start seeing more and more example of this. Uh, diabetic uh, retinopathy is a great one where um, now ophthalmologists take actually 20, 20 years of training to be able to read an OCT, a scan of, of your eye. And actually now machines are able to do it in a way that is even more optimized uh, than uh, most ophthalmologists can do with a lower error rate, both on the false positive and false negative associated to that. So when you think about the type of shortage of specialists that we have in the space or in surgery rooms, this is incredibly uh, important. We're putting it to use in other places as well, like take detection of leprosy in uh, India, which you would expect to be a biblical disease to be completely gone. Uh, it's still actually something extremely recurrent. Now you have simple AI with your phone on the, applied to the skin can help actually people detect if yes or no they are seriously at risk and the type of actions they have to take on the back of it. Um, so those are incredibly strong examples. I would argue they really help complement uh, the physicians or the nurse, the practitioners as well. They relieve them from probably some piece of the work that is quite uh, intensive in terms of training or in terms of time being spent to be able to really focus on, on stronger areas and or in some case for the nurse to spend way more time as well with patients. We also see it in, and we apply it within, within our walls in many other applications where you might call it more weak AI, but equally important for us. For example, we still have a lot of Salesforce uh, going to market. We make 100,000 contacts with our healthcare practitioners every single day. So now we are really mining that data every day in real time to get a better feel of how can we give the next best actions to our reps while they're on the board or to our marketeers about the media budget uh, to know of where to basically uh, reallocate the cause and, and the attention that they have. To the extent that we often even know before a doctor does when the patient is coming their way based on the certain tests that they've done, based on certain profile, of course, all this within the right anonymization, but it can be helpful because it's better usage of our own resource, but also really helping the, uh, the physicians as well as we have them on the way. So just two concrete examples, maybe on the, on the two sides of it. That's great. And, and what I hear from you, Bertrand, is much more of an assistance. So you said, you know, it allows, for example, nurses to spend more time with the patients. I didn't hear a lot of replacement. Would that be true that you don't see AI replacing people, but rather aiding them to do what they do best in their jobs? So, I mean, clearly I came to the industry with a certain naive feeling, for example, at the extreme. I mean, one of the most interesting space, 12 years, two and a half billion to get a drug to market, uh, thinking that, look, this is largely a computational challenge. Uh, so how can we replace the almost at the extreme, the two billion spend that we have in R&D to, well, overall it's company-wide, it's 10 billion 
to, to find workflows much faster. And many are applying the skills in AI to that, many interesting biotech, many startups. But I got the reality check, and Jennifer, you've been part of that journey with, with us as well when we talked about that, that uh, biology can be incredibly humbling. It's uh, uh, each of us are composed of 40 trillion cells, huge variability and composition as well of uh, gene and protein mutation that you can have. So we tried to really take that, that big beast and big elephant down instead of just thinking and dreaming that you can just do an in silico trial and that magic compounds will come out of it, to really slice it down of what are all the steps where AI can really help, where it can we better understand which stratification of patients might be more prone to this formulation of these medications. How can we use AI and the data that we have to understand which trial setup will have the best uh, impact with which inclusion exclusion criteria for the patients? including on the yeah. operational side. How can we predict which hospital is going to be good fast enough? How do we need to adjust our lab supply? So you're right, it's like I've seen more cases right now of, or at least we've been applying more cases which are equally valuable to us of how can we be a complement to human and getting human and AI to really work hand in hand with, with some wonderful effect on that. So I think it's dangerous to overly go it of its only replacement and to miss all the opportunities to be upon the way as part of that. Yeah. Super interesting. And I think you're also showing how AI can help the human to deal with hyper complex systems. I mean, I gave the example of, 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 uh, of the Go, you know, the playing Go, which is, they say, one of the most complex games, but that's nothing like the human body. So I think, you know, showing how AI can help the human to deal with so many moving parts, like uh, almost infinite, if we think about the human body, number of moving parts is a really interesting way of framing it. Thank you. Thank you, Bertrand. I'm going to move next to uh, Pedro. Um, where do you see the intersection and or the replacement and what is maybe relevant for our leadership audience here? Yeah, I think I think for people who are not really uh, expert or has been really in touch with AI, AI becomes like a, a little bit like magic, you know, okay, it's, we're going to replace humans and all that. And right now, I think my experience is it's, it's a great tool, like many other tools huh, we can find in the enterprise to really save time or automate processes that you can define uh, up to a certain extent. For instance, image recognition, I think it's a great example to diagnostic something. It's an image, we have to say, bad, good, uh, with a certain level of confidence. This is a very concrete problem. You can train the system and then the system can get better and better. When it comes to doing something more complex, uh, which is over different domains, maybe giving an opinion in different contexts. I think AI today is still, from my point of view, is still a little bit behind. Maybe in the next years we'll, we'll catch up. But when it's a concrete problem, very well defined, it's almost like an algorithm that we can train. AI is becoming really efficient because there are more data sets, there are better algorithms and, and things like that. So this is my experience. So right now, only tasks that we can really automate, uh, we can really replace humans. One particular case, uh, for next thing, for instance, we give alerting about cybersecurity threats. And before, maybe there were, you know, thousand people in a big company, they needed to analyze all these alerts and saying, okay, it's dangerous or not dangerous, et cetera. Now, thanks to uh, AI, they're able to say, okay, these alerts because of these patterns, et cetera, we're gonna, you know, short uh, the list to, to 100 and these 100, they're going to be analyzed by the security team. Therefore, instead of maybe 1,000 analysts, we need maybe 50. So we are actually reducing the number of jobs. But still, they, we need 50 that are pretty good and probably for the alerts, which are more trickier in this particular case. 
So this is my experience with, with AI today. Uh, but again, I think it's, it's particularly efficient when we have a very concrete uh, task that we can find an algorithm for. Super interesting. And I, I mean, I've been trying to follow that idea of domain switching, with, which humans were very good at, right? We can play chess one minute and go then and play Go and, and then talk about politics. Um, the machine isn't able to do that, which I understand is like this artificial general intelligence. How far do you think we are away from that, Pedro? Pedro? I think, look, I, I have a personal interest because obviously it's my background and I'm reading some articles and all that. Not very much because actually what, normally what is driving innovation is really the, you know, the, the money and the companies and all that. And there are very few companies that they are interested in this type of general intelligence, companies that are interested in very specific problems that they can make them uh, make more mm -hmm. profits or become more efficient. So it has to come from a real, you know, global initiative. There are companies like Google, which are, I think, or probably Amazon as well, that they are really investing in that direction, like general intelligence. But I, my experience is I didn't see yet like a huge advance people. There are chatbots and things like that, that they go into that direction. But yet there are not really mm -hmm. clear examples of something that can play chess and the same algorithm can, I don't know, do image recognition. This is still uh, not there, but it will come, I am sure. Okay, thank you, Pedro. Thomas, so you work in an industry that is all about delivering content and I think in the future, customizing that content as much as possible for the user. Where have you seen um, AI be used in this area, there, where it has replaced humans, and where have you seen the human intersect, intersecting with AI in this area? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Pedro said it, in my view, quite um, to the point. Um, I also see most of the applications being new applications where um, what I for once would call close to black magic, being able to do things that were just not possible, even if you would throw a thousand people at it um, some years ago. So um, we have today so much more data in all kinds of application, and this data couldn't be processed if it weren't for machine learning in the end. And in our case, we then use this data and the algorithms mostly for um, optimizing processes where the user benefit. So finding better search results for somebody um, looking for something on Ricardo, one of our platforms, or um, extracting um, um, the core message of a text um, and then uh, bringing it as a teaser um, for a publishing uh, title that we have. And there is um, at the moment really very few cases where we could actually replace humans. And one of them is um, when it comes to the classification of what we call toxic comments. So um, mm. the 20 minutes platform, a free sheet that we have um, has about 10,000 comments that our users put up every day. 
and we are not allowed to publish insulting content or um, or uh, I don't know racist content or um, all these. There's a lot of limitations, so we have to filter um, these comments out. And that was done five years ago by humans, leading to yeah. slow processes. So the comments would only go online after hours, um, at the best case, and. Um, now we can do this all with machine learning um, and of um, as um, Bertrand and Pedro said this is um, an assistant uh, we still need humans but we can pre-filter so much of the work that the work can be done with less people and then um, generating more interesting work actually um, and having more specialized function there and uh, we don't have to review 10,000 comments anymore. What I think is there quite amazing um, for myself is that the machine learning space really learned how to deal with more complex problems. Mm -hmm. So uh, when it comes to image classification or national natural language processing, machine learning is now able to understand what what is the content of it and it's not just like descriptive but it's really um, on a, on the next level and that's what's really interesting in from my point of view so brilliant i think maybe thomas i'll use your uh, text analysis tool for my teaching evaluations that was a joke, by the way. Um, okay, so I think what you're you're raising here is this idea that you said you know we used to maybe have a hundred analysts and now we've we're down to fifty, but we still need analysts. So all of us are here in the audience um, because we're interested in our leadership development. We want to become better leaders, and all of you, um, Pedro, Bertrand, and Thomas, are responsible for selecting people, developing people. Uh, what would you, if you are thinking about the future in terms of skills and competencies that leaders need in a world that is going to be more directed by AI, more influenced by AI, what would you say are those competencies that leaders need for the future to really distinguish themselves from what the machine can do? And only because I know, uh, Bertrand, you have to leave in eight minutes, uh, but I want to be, keep, be respectful of your time. I'm going to start again with you. Um, what are those competencies or skills that you're really looking for in the future leaders? Yeah, that's that's a great one. I think I mean, the number one to me is curiosity. It's really leaders who are naturally curious about it, who have a good business sense, who have good pragmatic sense, who understand what the questions are, but are naturally curious to say, how can I crack this challenge differently? As Pedro and Thomas said earlier, instead of needing maybe 800 people for this, is there another way for some of the administrative tasks actually to be taken aside and actually to be replaced by uh, much more automated in that context. And we have, uh, even to the point that we have now reshaped our, our cultural dimension around three dimensions. It's, it's called the, how do we can become more unbossed, inspired, and curious. I think it fits very nicely into a healthcare type of environment where we are a curious bunch. We are obsessed about data. We are always on the hunts for uh, finding the right uh, solution as well to some of the big complex problems that we have as well in the world. So I think that curiosity is important to the point that to give you a sense, we have put all sort of trainings in place fairly recently. And I was really surprised by that uh, about a year ago. 
um, the number one training that was taken. So we have an ambition to get each of our teams to take 100 hours of training per year, which is a big ambition, uh, trying to really live by that uh, notion of curiosity and learning. And the number one class that was taken on was about data science and AI. Um, 30,000 uh, of our 100,000 teams effectively went on it. And I'm not talking about a small training of an hour here and there, I'm talking about some things that are quite ex uh, encompassing with uh, extensive modules. Now, separately from this, we're also working on, uh, we are, we're building up quite, uh, and I would be remiss to, not to say that we're building some uh, meaningful, significant data science and AI team. We've been hiring extensively from the likes of Amazon, uh, from Amazon, from Google, from IBM Watson Health, um, some, probably some of the best minds that are there. Uh, we also know about the latest class, who know where the best talent is, who, who know uh, how to attract the right type of partnership as well that we have at the table. We have extended our talent as well with, and I think that's leadership as well, with some partners. So recognizing that we don't have all the answers. So we work very closely with Microsoft AI, work very closely with Amazon uh, in a wide variety of space. Just to give you a sense, we're trying to crack the code on some areas like generative chemistry or like personalized medicine or, or smart dosing for uh, wet macular degeneration, for example. So we have turned there some real expert into that. And lastly, the ultimate holy grail to me, but that's, that's a big ambition. We'll see if we can make a crack at that, is we're trying, we have a notion of citizen data scientists. So we work with Microsoft on that, trying to do to AI what they have done to Excel. So they've completely standardized Excel in a way that you don't need to be a developer to know how to use Excel. Uh, you just take a bunch of classes, you, you all know the drill on that. So how can we really make AI much more a citizen data scientist expertise where you could drag and drop some PDF files or make some spreadsheets, some unstructured data, structured data. You'd have a whole set of class that automatically of models that would be categorized accordingly depending on the type of data set that is being seen. And maybe not getting to your general uh, intelligence that you were referring to earlier with Petal, but more at least being as intuitive as possible so that even without knowing what is behind the machinery, but with a clear guideline explanation on the way that many more of our team combined with curiosity could become those citizen data scientists. That to me would be a holy grail. And you can see why Microsoft would be interested in that because that would be an next frontier of really scaling up what the potential of what AI could do in the hands of people who have real problems on the, on the real day uh, to go and solve uh, with, uh, in, in smarter, probably more advanced way. Thank you, uh, Bertrand. So I, I think that curiosity component is really key. We talk here at IMD um, about hyper-awareness. So not only being aware of what's happening in your close domain, but really going beyond that and being aware of what potential opportunities and threats um, lie beyond. And I think that's captured in curiosity. I should say, from the little I know about Bertrand, you're one of the most curious people I've ever met uh, and, and really very motivated to understand things that are not in your uh, close area of expertise. So really a great role model on that dimension. The other thing was I, I was reading between the lines and what you said, Bertrand, in the sense that you bring people in in a way that not only brings in their expertise, but the network that comes along with them that helps uh, you at Novartis to move forward in your goals. So I think that's also an interesting thing to think about is not only what is the individual bringing in, but what is the network that comes along with them in, in, in a world of, of data and AI. So thank you for that. I'm going to go now to Thomas. Um, what have you seen in your experience as being some of the competencies or skills that you would tell our audience? Um, our audience is made up of various levels and, and ages. If you're thinking about really either reskilling yourself or building up some of these new competencies or skills, what do you think, what would you advise or what do you see as being important? 
I always love this, um, how hype cycles are described. Um, so, you know, they start with the innovation trigger, they go over to the peak of inflated expectations, and then comes the throw of disillusionment. And then finally, you approach the plateau of productivity. And um, if machine learning and AI and many of these related topics, it's of course um, the same. And I think as a leader, it's most important to anticipate the, the move when a technology, and now in this case, machine learning is reaching uh, the plateau of productivity or just anticipating that the throw of disillusionment has passed for this very application that we're looking at. And then of course, like being a, um, a leader and a manager mostly means um, one is a generalist and not the specialist. So to, to gather the knowledge and to build the trust that now um, machine learning can really be applied and made, put into production in this, um, in this technology, to have this curiosity that Bertrand said, um, but also to have the pragmatism and not just fall for the snake oil um, that is sold everywhere around machine learning. I mean, you know, when, uh, no, some years ago, there was 99% um, snake oil. Um, and nowadays, um, I would think um, the snake oil has almost vanished uh, in the machine learning space. Um, and to get this feeling about um, uh, about differentiating that, I think that's the the most important um, when it comes to leadership. To have the self confidence, to have the right information available, to have people that one can trust um, in in making a, a decision, um, because. Yeah, uh, not every technology is as simple um, as, I don't know, um, the telephone nowadays, but um, there will come more and more complex technology that will eventually change the course of the world. And I think mm -hmm. that's the big, um, the big, beautiful challenge that we're facing. Super interesting. So also I, I I'm hearing you say, not only do you understand the technology, but can you also discern between what is real and as you call it, the snake oil. So a good nose for understanding the, um, the truly relevant or truly impactful uh, directions forward is important in leaders today, Thomas. And it looks like I was hoping uh, to be able to say goodbye to Bertrand. It looks like he had to sign off exactly at 1.30. So um, uh, thanks to Bertrand, and I will pass along our thanks to him after the session. Pedro, we also want to hear from you. Um, you've now worked recently on two different uh, continents, um, seeing maybe leaders in different styles on these, on these, in these different areas. What do you see as the competencies that leaders need now? And what would you advise people who are reskilling or developing themselves to focus on? Around AI, right? This question, right? Not
you are on mute, I think. Oh, sorry. Not only AI, but we are leaders that are interacting in a world that is infused with AI. So what do you need as a leader today when, as you said, you know, sometimes your analysts will be, not all of them, but some of them will be replaced. Yeah. And so what were those ones that are replaced? What would you advise them to go and learn? Yeah. No, I think it's a, it's a great question. And because there is so much hype around AI, I think it's very important for a leader to really have someone who really understands the details. Um, I think the people they have to approach AI as they approach legal or they approach user design or you know interface design in their products. It's really a way to optimize the company. So they need, I mean, if there are people that they get trained on AI algorithms and things like that across the company, I don't think it's gonna have any impact. What is gonna have an impact is if there is someone, a CTO, a CDO, who is really able to understand how AI is gonna be applied for certain processes in the company to optimize them. So what I'm trying to, to say here is, in general leaders, I'm talking more about, you know, kind of general leaders, right? CEOs and things like that. They cannot become experts on everything. So I think it's very important that they have someone who really understands the, the, the real impact that AI, machine learning can have in the company, which is not different from 20 years ago to have a good CFO, which is able to install a good ERP or a good sales leader, which is able to install a good CRM to uh, have more efficiency on the sales force. These are just tools to make the company more productive, to make sure that we are but uh, I would like to demystify that all of the sudden all CEOs, they have to become experts in AI because I don't think it's the case. What kind of knowledge, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you have a master's in, in AI, so you did go in deep in the topic, but for yeah. those who don't have maybe the time or ability to invest a full master's, what type of or in, or intensity of training do you think is required? What level of knowledge on these topics? Yeah. Now, this is a very good question. And actually, I spend uh, some time. I don't think, I mean, when you go to Coursera or these type of courses and they give you an AI kind of course, it's, it's all about the algorithms, support vector machines, hidden Markov models, clustering, all this type of thing. But honestly, this... Today, it's already uh, packaged by Microsoft, by Amazon, by, you know, so you don't need to know all these algorithms. What is really important is to know what's the purpose of these algorithms, why they are, I mean, why, in which applications they can be used and in which applications they cannot be used. So I think having a general understanding of this type of domains because AI is really huge. So there are many things from speech recognition, image recognition, case-based reasoning. There are many things that we can find in AI. So having a kind of understanding this group of algorithms or this group of you know, areas in artificial intelligence can be applied for this type of problems, I think is useful. Going to the details of the mathematics and all these things behind, I don't think is really useful for someone which is not actually coding. Okay, thank you. Um, in the, we have about 10 minutes left. And in that, I wanna give the floor to the audience members to ask you their burning questions. And I've been monitoring the chat. I would like to ask one um, from Yaroslav. And he says, 
where and how does responsibility fit into the AI versus human debate? And what sort of, maybe I'm going to add on to this, what sort of ethical um, dilemmas or conundrums do you see leaders having to face and be mindful of in this space? I'm going to go back to Thomas for this to start off. Uh, in my, yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I think this is um, a super important part of the leadership um, to remain the, the moral compass um, when eat whatever technologies one applies. Um, and uh, there is, this is not a technical decision um, about moral, but that's really um, true leadership um, to apply the moral compass um, to, to the decisions. And machine learning is there uh, really hard because um, in machine learning, you take um, sample data, you train something and then you apply it to the big chunk of, of your problem. So when your, data, when your sample data has a bias in any direction, in any moral direction, now we're discussing over, then the result will have the same bias eventually. And um, then to make sure that this, um, that the mesh, that the filtering doesn't um, um, change the moral compass of, of the company or of the task at hand, um, that's, that's really a big challenge. Um, let's say job applications, you know, um, yeah, what about if just um, um, a certain minority gets filtered out um, of job applications because the training set didn't have um, this minority included? Um, then um, that's a really big problem um, that one has to face. So I think as a leader, uh, whenever um, technologies are applied that are... Um, not fully understandable, and that's important here. Um, machine learning algorithms are extremely hard to understand why they do certain things. It's not an yeah. if-else statement um, that can be followed, yeah. but the machine just says, in the, um, I mean, there's this joke, computer says no. So that's what it just does, you know, um, mm -hmm. and it takes even more um, sometimes to understand the algorithm, why it did something, then to train it. And there, I think a leader has to be extremely cautious um, and, and really demand and check um, the moral compliance of the decisions being made. Mm -hmm. And you raised a couple of interesting points, and one was also raised in the comment by Yaroslav, um, is this idea of, you know, the subjective side, and, and when we have bias in our training data, so I mentioned the example of Unilever using AI to select the first round of job candidates, if that training data is, for example, looking at the nonverbals of their most successful employees, well, are there certain demographics or ethnic or racial groups or gender groups that are represented more in that data set than not? And right. And so you would then see that the whatever is fed out of this algorithm also has those biases in it. And I think for us as leaders, 
those are key questions that we need to grapple with. But as Jaroslav said, and you mentioned it, right? You said you have you use um, AI to go through what is considered um, or to filter out offensive comments, right? Offensive comments are subjective, and what's offensive to somebody might just be free speech to another person. And so I think that's also where, when we are crafting these algorithms, we need to be really considering different perspectives, bringing in that hyper-awareness, that curiosity to make these sort of decisions. So, um, yeah. And also the other way around, we just had um, two weeks ago uh, an incident where somebody found out how to um, circumvent our machine um, in the toxic comments um, and we had a lot of toxic comments online um, so it's not only that um, the, you know that the machine filters out stuff it shouldn't but it can also of course go the other way around it lets stuff through that that actually shouldn't um, and there um, the, I mean yeah um, machines have to be constantly improved. It's not, um, there's no, um, you know, perfect machine um, in, in that sense. Thank you. So Pedro, where in your work do you see this responsibility and ethical question coming up and challenging the leaders in, in your organization? Yeah, I think the responsibility is really, coming back to the question, is really on you know, on the company or the person doing the algorithm. So the team definitely cannot be a responsibility of, uh, of an algorithm, you know. And, and, and I have to say that everybody has cognitive bias. I mean, if you look at the world, always the same type of people at the end, your brain will associate as well, not only AI, but your brain, uh, this type of people too. So as, as we have to train people to accept you know, other things in the world like diversity and things like that, we should train algorithms to accept diversity and things like that. So there's no difference from training an algorithm about, you know, thinking out of box and training someone to think out of box. Just want to say that because it looks like our people are not, but people also behave in that way. Um, so for me, definitely, I think we have to be, uh, we have to consider AI today as a, as a tool, as an assistant, as a way to improve, but can never replace the accountability and the, um, the responsibility of the teams behind. Thank you very much. And with that, I believe that we are out of time. So a couple of closing remarks that I would like to um, conclude here with. I'm really hearing from our panel that AI is, is in some areas replacing the human, but it's more about thinking, how do we use it to deal with extremely complex systems that is freeing us up as humans to focus on things that we as humans uniquely bring and are, are uniquely good at. And some of that has to do with the responsibility, the ethics, but also the judgment and the ability to switch domains, right? This, art, this general intelligence that artificial general intelligence doesn't currently have. And I think uh, what, what Bertrand started with uh, talking about curiosity and the importance for leaders to be curiosity, but also motivated to go out there, as Pedro and Thomas said, and learn a bit more, maybe not become technical experts in creating these algorithms, because that can already be done by, uh, by, other, by other parties, but really to understand what is the relevance and how do you apply it and what makes it, uh, what makes it relevant and able to move your industry forward. So concluding remarks. Thank you again to Pedro and Thomas for your time and your expertise and your insights. 
really invaluable and such a privilege to have it added to our OWP live experience. So a hand of applause for our two speakers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wishing you well in the rest of your OWP experience, our last day of the program. So good luck in the rest of your afternoon, guys, and thank you again.